Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine. This podcast appears weekly and is available on all major podcast platforms. The um, American film director, Martin Scorsese, perhaps the you know greatest American filmmaker ever, has always given us an, an amazing array of monstrous figures in his films. One can think of Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, you know, who goes on a horrific murderous killing spree. The Jimmy Doyle in New York, New York, kind of, you know, clingy, manic musician who tries to sabotage his wife's success. Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull, you know, like a brutal boxer who also inflicts pain, not just on his opponents in the ring, but on his loved ones, including his first wife. And I, I think to this array of monsters, we now have a new members of the Pantheon uh, who have some similarities with what's gone before, but also maybe are sort of like bring Scorsese's characteristic themes to like a new level of intensity. The new movie, of course, as everyone knows, is The Killers of the Flower Moon. It's set in the 1920s uh, in Oklahoma, in Osage County, and it features Robert De Niro, longtime Scorsese collaborator as uh, William King uh, Hale, a uh, wealthy rancher, and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Ernst uh, Burkhardt, his nephew. Um, and this is based on a true story. And, and what these men did, this is not a spoiler alert because it's pretty clear early in the movie, but what they did is kind of monstrous, which is going on a murder spree against um, uh, Native Americans, particularly Native American women of the Osage uh, nation, in order to get their oil land. And then using the instrument of marriage as the way to do this, to marry into these families uh, and, and then kill spouses 
to enrich the, their own white family. It's a kind of an amazing story, both on its own, but it's also, a sort of, as I said, a culmination, or it seems to be, you know, Scorsese really bringing together obsessive themes that he's had throughout all his long, distinguished career and really bring him together. So to talk about this, what I think is a a, a remarkable movie. I'm very happy to have on David Cleon, the frequent guest of the podcast, a frequent contributor to The Nation, The New Republic, Jewish Currents, and many other publications that are lucky to have him. So David, do you want to introduce yourself and let's talk about the movie? Yeah. So I just reviewed this for The New Republic, where I generally put my film and TV criticism. And I'm uh, reading the book now. I've mostly read the book before we do this. Yeah, I should mention it's based on a nonfiction book by David Grant, a New Yorker staff writer. And it's a very, it's a, it was a huge bestselling book and is, is very well regarded. Yes, yeah. the book came out in 2017. I actually went to an event at the New York Public Library at the time and then just didn't get around to reading it, but in which Gran was being interviewed by a perfect interlocutor, Jeffrey Tubin. And in in it was a packed event and the really striking thing actually was during the Q&A uh, a a living member of the Osage Nation stood up and and praised Graham for the book and for calling attention to these mm -hmm. stories, which, you know, they the, the Osage Nation had basically waited a century for. The the story is completely fascinating. As I say in my review, it it upends a lot of people's conventional wisdom about what the the West was like, really. And I think Scorsese captures this incredibly well on camera in what I would almost describe as world building. I mean, it's a real world that he's recreating, but it's a world that we've never quite seen before in this way. So what I mean by that is, you know, in, in the opening shots of the movie, we, we see the Osage in this kind of, you know, barren prairie environment, which as we come to learn, they, they were basically exiled to. In the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, what we now call Oklahoma was considered Indian territory. It was not a state. It was a kind of almost a giant reservation in the middle of the country to which Indians had been pushed from, from mostly the southeastern United States, you know, by Andrew Jackson's Trail of Tears and so on. The Osage had been driven there from, I think, Kansas and other states in the middle of the country and, you know, ended and up in Missouri there. as well, I think. And yeah. Missouri and and yeah. and they ended up in Oklahoma, this small tribe, you know, for, for lack of other options. And as we see in the incredible opening scene of the movie, um, they struck oil. And we see them, you know, a group of them basically dancing and, and reveling in the middle of, a, of an oil spurt, knowing their world has changed forever. Striking oil in the late 19th century was a big deal. And by the, you know, first decades of the 20th century, an enormous deal. You know, oil is, is just beginning to become the, the most valuable thing in the world, the, the spice melange, if you will. <laughs> and, you know, it's, 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 people are just using it to light and, and heat their homes and, and obviously for cars and, and, and weapons of war and so on. And so the Osage, as we learn, you know, very quickly, very, very quickly become by some reckonings, the, the wealthiest per capita group of people in the world, which speaking for myself, before I saw Grant speak about this in 2017, I, I just had no idea that that was the case. I had never heard any of the story. I was, of mm -hmm. course, aware that the history of the United States is is one of, you know, nonstop injustices and massacres against Native peoples. And but 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 the specific nature of this one, I mean, in my imagining, 
And I imagine to most Americans, you know, that story looks something like this, you know, white settlers come in, maybe they fight some wars with the Indians, maybe they just round them up and drive them west or hoard them into reservations. Maybe, you know, depending on the era, they're dying from smallpox. You know, that those, those are the kind of images that pop into my head when I think of the the genocide. What, what you don't normally think of, I certainly didn't, is this oil boom town in which it's actually the Indians who have all the money and are living lavish urban lifestyles, albeit in a in a tiny town that still has, you know, muddy, unpaved streets, and that's just kind of sprung up out of nowhere, in which, you know, many of the their domestic servants, their chauffeurs, and so on are white people who have, you know, traveled out there in search of employment. And in which the the horrible process by which white people steal what's rightfully the Osage money is 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 a creepily intimate one of of you know, marriages and kind of infiltration of their communities and fittingly for a Scorsese movie, an almost mafia-like conspiracy to assassinate them one by one. And this is just, I mean, if, if, if this movie accomplished nothing else, I mean, the book obviously got us halfway there, but if this book and movie accomplished nothing else, they've, they've made this incredibly chilling chapter of American history, mainstream knowledge, which it it truly wasn't, and but it also does a lot more than that. I would say. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, 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 there's a couple of points that you made there that I want to like hit on, which is I, I think in the sort of mental map that people have of American history, Indigenous people sort of belong in the early part of the story, and it's a story of you know like Columbus and and maybe the later the uh, Indian Wars and you know Andrew Jackson, and then then sort of drop out of history. And I think you know, Custer's Last Stand. Or yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 but not yeah. not this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, yeah. they're for yeah. they're for one thing, they're not seen as urban people living, mm-hmm. you know, in in mansions, being driven around in cars, wearing yeah. fancy clothes. That's just not the story that anyone is told about, you know, Native Americans yeah. in the early twentieth century. Yeah, I know. And so there's there has actually been a sort of trend among historians to sort of complicate that story in a number of different ways. One of which is to just emphasize the sort of persistence of the the native tribes. I mean, if you think about the fact that the, you know, Indian wars were fought in the late 19th century, that basically meant that there was like a 400, the final defeat of the indigenous nations, or perhaps not even final, but like, you know, the, the, the herding into reservations. And so that's a 400 year period where, you know, these were actually like tribes that there were, there were autonomous nations within this continent who had land, who had cultures, who had diplomatic relationships with other nations, with with the other indigenous nations, but also with the British, the French, and later, you know, the Americans. And so there's a and that the, there was a kind of monomyth that was created in the late 19th century, coming out of the the Indian Wars of you know, like as you said, you know, Custer's Last Stand, and then the defeat of Geronimo. Well, you know, well that chapter of history is over, and now these are like defeated people, and also like that these are people who are going to disappear. This is this like actually like a conceptual, important conceptual scheme in not just the United States, but also in Canada and throughout the Western Hemisphere. That, you know, these are people who now belong to the past and are not no longer, they will be in the reservations and we'll take good care of them. We'll give them schools. Well, we all know what happened there. <laughs> and, and we'll, 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 you know, I give them Christianity. Uh, but, you know, we, we're, we're in the sort of role of care, care, caretakers 
who are overseeing a dying people and, you know, like giving them the, you know, like a dignified final exit. It's a kind of a euthanasia view of Native history. And so I, th- I think one thing that makes the story compelling, you know, aside from like all the obvious drama is that actually shows, no, 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 I, you know, they didn't disappear. They, you know, they had a robustness and persistence. And in this, the particular the Osage, you know, like they, you know, they precisely because they were put into the worst land, you know, that's where oil often is, right? It's like the, the land that no one wants has the, 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 the traits that lead to oil. In some ways, they're, they're like sort of like Saudi Arabia. So, so, so I think that, I mean, I think like Scorsese is like keying in on a very important way in which this story upends the traditional narrative of America. And I noticed in some of the ads, they say a true American story, you know, which to emphasize, you know, this is an American story and it's different. And I think your review actually, which we'll link to, like really brings this out, like the the overturning of the the myth. And the second point, you know, I had mentioned earlier, the, you know, this, this idea that the indigenous people are dying people, right? There's a famous phrase, like the vanishing American. These are the vanishing American. They're 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 like you know they're the the, the great grandparents that were like are in retirement home and they're not going to be with us much longer. That 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 cultural myth, that sort of you know self serving fantasy, I think is very important in the movie. It actually helps us understand the the dynamics between the white characters and the the Osage. Yeah, well, I mean, for one thing. Hale, the the sort of ringleader of of this evil plot played by De Niro, quite explicitly justifies himself according to the myth that you've laid out. I mean, this movie mostly takes place in the late 19-teens and and 1920s, by which point that myth is very well established, right? The frontier Mm -hmm. has been closed, you know, the, the... any kind of true autonomy has been defeated and the Osage are, are living in, you know, a, a, a territory that, that white settlers are, are greedily hung, are, 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 you know, greedily staking out for themselves. And, you know, De Niro is literally plotting a, a, a mass murder and, and expropriation ring while, you know, posturing as a, as a, you know, Old Testament Christian the way he reconciles that apparently to the end of his life, Hale did, is with this sort of narrative of the inevitability of of, of the Indians dying out. That's that's what he tells his son. And the incredible and chilling thing about the character is that he's able to, in the service of this nefarious plot, so fully ingratiate himself with the Osage community to the point of learning their language. I mean, he he actually learned a language spoken by, you know, a few thousand people, most of whom by this point seem to also speak English. Um, that's that's the sort of degree of commitment he had. Um, and he dubs himself, you, you called him King at one point. That's the name that uh, his, his nephew mm-hmm. calls him. He, he styles himself the King of the Osage, this white rancher who's, you know, in the process of murdering the Osage. He, you know, he's created this whole self-serving ideology that in, in which I, I I think he actually believes that on some level, that that he is the sort of manager of of the inevitable demise of, of these people, and that in order to pull that off, he's he's going to integrate himself into their world, which is monstrously evil on a level that, I mean, obviously the white settler genocide of, of Native Americans is evil in every way, but rarely, rarely do we see it depicted and depicted as, you know, in this unflinching way. And then even when we do, I think 
the you know it's generally seen as like white white settlers just want to take the land take the resources kill the indians or drive them away they don't want to like you know intimately get to know them you know they don't they don't want to like i mean there's something that's so much more chilling about that in a way yeah sure sure although i mean i i that's exactly right and although i have to say well there's a couple of things to say on that point one of which is that the people who did the most harm to the indigenous people were the ones that were most intimate with them. I mean, you know, like here in Canada, there's a big issue with the residential schools. Um, These were like schools administered by the Canadian or financed by the Canadian state, administered by churches, both Catholic and Protestant churches that were, you know, designed to, you know, as they say, the term they use was to civilize the savage or civilize the child. And and then there were sites of like horrific abuse. And one thing to think about like those schools is that the people who were doing them were first of all styling themselves as missionaries, as where they, they were seen as the great humanitarians of Canadian and American society, the people who were going to live among these benighted people and were the most intimate with them and then did have the familiarity with the language and the culture with the goal of like obliteration and 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 used abusive methods to carry out that goal. So 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 there's a way in which this is not just the story of this particular what one could almost say freakishly evil scheme, but it, it fits in with this broader pattern of sort of, you know, like benevolent racism, paternalistic racism. And I think that's a, like a, a big part of racism in general, that it, you know, some of the great historians of slavery, in my in my review in The Nation, I mentioned Eugene Genovese and Elizabeth Fox Genovese, problematic faves for, for, for Marxist historians for many reasons. But in their writings, they really emphasize that the, the, the slave household was a paternalistic household with the, the head of the, the, the enslavers, the planters, stylizes themselves as the head of the of family, you know, the slaves, they're part of our family. And in many cases, you know, like, you know, one thinks of, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, that was literally the case, that the people who were being enslaved were sometimes also the, I don't want to say romantic, because it's not, I mean, they were in some sort of physical relationship with the the enslaved and the enslavers and that that produced children and so some of the children who are the enslaved children were the children of the enslavers and so 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 i mean that model of racism is like racism it combines racism with domestic abuse there is racism at the at the very basic level of family and so you know like as the kids say today intersexual right like there's a the 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 patriarchy and racism go hand in hand well, that's clearly on display in this movie. And, you know, without getting too much into the, the sort of Sally Hemings slavery paradigm, I mean, the, obviously, in a situation like that, we're talking about people who are, you know, literally enslaved and unfree and mm. and cannot meaningfully consent to the relations they're having, whatever the nuances of, of yeah, those yeah. relations yeah. may be. There's there's something inherently violating about it yeah, in that yeah. context. What's yeah. interesting I, uh, about uh, this on mo- the spectrum, no, 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 no. Sorry, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't mean that as a criticism of you. No, just no, no, as no, a yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, no. A setup no, I mean, yeah, for, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I want to say yeah. There's a spectrum, and then like I I brought up the Sally Hemings thing as the most extreme the thing of this and then what this movie does is like interesting because uh, i'll let you continue yeah. like i think uh, yeah 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 what i wanted to say is that so this is a movie in which as as you wrote in uh, your nation review um domestic abuse uh is you know part of the crime that's being committed here but what makes this movie so 
unsettling and 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 nuanced in its way is that although we know that the marriage of Molly Burkhardt, who's incredibly portrayed by by Lily Gladstone and Ernest Burkhardt, the the DiCaprio character, although we know that he is being essentially assigned to marry her by Hale. And although we know that, you know, he has a, a clear mercenary motivation to do so, you know, he maintains pretty much throughout the movie that he actually does love Molly. And we're given some reason to believe, I mean, I feel uncomfortable calling what he, you know, a man who's poisoning his his wife and, 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 conspiring against and murdering her family. I, I have a hard time calling that love, but I'll allow that, you know, I mean, Ernest is a, is a simpleton, which is kind of central to DiCaprio's <laughs> presentation of him. He's a dullard. He's, he's kind of a nothing. And I'll allow that in his kind of moral and intellectual shallowness, he, he may believe himself to love Molly. He may see, he, he certainly is a genuine affection for and attraction to and, and connection to her. And crucially, it's reciprocated. And crucially, because Molly is such a fascinating character and, and Gladstone captures this so brilliantly, it's reciprocated even though Molly is not stupid. And mm. even though Molly is on some level aware, at the very least, that, that you know Ernest wants money, which he doesn't deny, because she's far from the only Osage woman marrying a white man in this in this mm. Amelia, that you know, her 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 relatives have done the same thing. It's this huge pattern, and you know, it's to Scorsese's enormous credit, I think, as a, a storyteller, that he's able to capture this very uncomfortable scenario in which in which Molly is not compelled to marry Ernest. She she does it very voluntarily. She does love him, and she does so even though she's aware of the economic imbalance between them and motives he may have, which he doesn't really deny. And she's aware on some level, which kind of culminates by the end of the movie, as as events proceed, that he's also involved in this murderous plot, that it's not just a matter of wanting to marry Rich. And she's able to kind of live with a certain degree of denial about that. And the only real lens for understanding how an intelligent person could find themselves in that situation for as long as, as she does is abuse, relational mm. abuse, domestic marital abuse. I mean, what we are seeing here is is an abusive marriage. And what Molly is, 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 is someone trapped in an abusive marriage that she knows on some level is destroying her and destroying her family and her people. But that's very, very hard to pry herself out of, especially because of all the you know, structural and societal forces that that are reinforcing it, which are profound in this case. But but the level of personal denial she has and her eventual triumph over it is is incredibly poignant, in part because it it, you know, forces us to engage with not just the evil that's being inflicted on the Osage, but with the Osage as complicated characters who and individuals who are caught up in in, you know, very complicated human relations, not not least of which is a, and, and I think this is not too on the nose, but is a, a kind of strange attraction to the white men who are plundering them. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I think that's right. Well, I mean, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, there's a kind of, you know, a wave of sort of scholarship on indigenous people. And one thing that gets emphasized is, you know, 
obviously, you know, there's huge cruelty and then even genocide, but also like, you know, these are peoples that like lived next to each other for, for centuries and did engage in sort of cultural exchange, uh, you know, communication and, and, you know, like, yeah, there was some level of sort of reciprocal engagement. Yeah, once he's at in other places as well, like, you know, like, you know, in some of the wars that are existing in the world today, you know, like, you know, in Ukraine and Russia, you know, on, on one hand, like, you know, obviously great cruelty and imperialism, but there's also a cultural history of Ukraine and Russia that's so more complicated. And also in the Middle East, one has to say, but we won't go there. But uh, the... No, um, no, no. But I, I think it's fine to briefly go there and just yeah, say yeah. that, yeah, Israelis and Palestinians are, you know, have have extremely intertwined cultures as a yeah. result of this settler colonial encounter that can often, and this is true with Russia and Ukraine too, manifest itself in fights over, you know, food items, for instance, and, yeah, yeah. and and who really invented them, where where there's huge stakes in, in that question, even though we're talking about foods that, you know, both sides enjoy, and if they were at peace, could enjoy together. And certainly in this movie, I mean, the, the Osage never had that moment of militarized resistance. They they didn't have the the numbers or the the position to do it really. They they resist in the ways they can, but those are very, very limited. But I I think you certainly see this cultural reciprocity not just in, you know, Hale learning the Osage language, but also in, you know, the these wealthy Osage are, are, are wearing the fashions of the roaring twenties, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and going to, to speakeasies and, 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 you know, driving the, the, the fanciest new cars and, you know, and their houses, these wonderful suburban houses that some of them have that, you know, are, are very much in the style of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they'll decorate them with, you know, traditional Osage handicrafts. Yeah. It's, it's, it, there's something very to me at least, kind of beautiful about this kind of yeah. roaring 20s, wealthy Osage fusion culture that we're introduced <laughs> to and then see torn to shreds by by these, you know, voracious white mobster settlers. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that point about cultural exchange is so important. And I think it's something that people in a sort of generalized sense don't get from their knowledge of like American history that I mean, one thing is about, you know, what does one associate with indigenous cultures in the Americas? The horse is certainly one thing, but you know, the horse came from the old world, right? And it was something that was adopted by the indigenous people and then used brilliantly by them. And so, 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 you know, and, and, you know, like conversely, a lot of things that one thinks of as, you know, American food, like Turkey or whatever, you know, are like, it came from the indigenous cultures. So, 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 yeah, I mean, the, the film does actually, and then this is like very typical of Scorsese. He's, 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 he's an amazingly anthropological filmmaker, like, like very attentive to group dynamics and to the sort of, you know, the way cultures interact. And then uh, that's a big part of it. Uh, on the point you made about, I mean, it's, it is an uncomfortable thing, the fact that this is a love story, as well as a story of, you know, like domestic abuse and, and murder. Um, and one thing I want to emphasize is that actually came, uh, this emphasis came from Molly's family herself, that, you know, in the process of like, you know, working on the script and, you know, conceptualize the movie, Scorsese and the the actors, they, they met with the Osage, and including meeting with one of Molly Burkhardt's granddaughters. And the granddaughter, this is something Lily Gladstone mentioned in an interview, the granddaughter said, you know, you have to remember that Ernst and Molly loved each other. And that's an important part of the story. And and that, and so, you know, it's... I should say, um, by the way, that the, the book, 
yes. at least two thirds of the way through the book does not emphasize this. The book yeah, is yeah. far more focused on the FBI mm-hmm. and the, the it's it's kind of a, a detective story almost. It's an investigation of mm-hmm. of a murder ring, and you know the characters of the movie are are all present in the book. Mm-hmm. Their stories are there, but it you know. It is certainly not the story of Ernest and Molly foreground. That's that's yeah, a choice yeah. Scorsese made. No, the, the, well, yeah, I mean, uh, this is a story that, that has come through, like in interviews, that there was a first draft which is very close to the uh, the book and was a kind of like FBI police procedural. And, and, and DiCaprio, not Jesse Plemons, was supposed to play Tom White. The yeah, 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 uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so the main character would be the FBI, your proto FBI investigator. Who like did this? And it's about the formation of the FBI. And yeah, the 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 plum role would of DiCaprio would be the FBI agent. And and it was a DiCaprio himself who was like unhappy with that script and said, you know, there's something missing here, the heart. And then they were talking to the Osage. And then and there there are other books. Lily Gladstone recommended them, and I, I, the no, the name doesn't come to mind, but I'll put it in the show notes. There was a, no, a novel written by an Osage woman that. Um, deals with the relationship between Ernst and Molly. And that was much more of an inspiration in addition to the David Grant book. So so, so there was a shift in the, the making of the movie away from the FBI story to the domestic abuse story. And and in doing so, they decided to draw on other sources. They started to draw on the, what they heard from the Osages themselves and from family stories and, and from these other written accounts. So, so, so yeah, no, I... The, I mean, I haven't read the book. You're two thirds of the way through a very well regarded book. But uh, from everything I've heard and from what you're saying, it is a book about, as the subtitle says, you know, the, the formation of the FBI, the birth of the FBI. Yeah, which is part of this movie, to be sure. And and maybe worth talking a little bit about because, well, so one thing that Graham says explicitly and Scorsese doesn't feel the need to say explicitly. That, again, one thing I really liked about this movie is how many times, in contrast to so much of, I think, popular culture right now, how many times Scorsese could have been on the nose and mm-hmm. isn't and trusts audiences to sort of see these nuances for themselves. Grand says explicitly, and I don't fault him for this at all, when he first talks about J. Edgar Hoover and, you know, who... who was a bureaucrat, not a cop, and and built the FBI basically in order to, you know, build his sort of bureaucratic fortress in, in the federal government that he would then maintain for, for decades. Capsule introducing Hoover and, and his founding of the FBI says, you know, he would go on to commit some of the greatest abuses of power in American history. Now, if you have the most glancing familiarity with 20th century... Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. American history, the name J. Edgar Hoover conjures up that you know, point to you. you, you, you may not know all the details, but you know, you know, he wiretap MLK or whatever, you, you, mm-hmm. you know, Derek Hoover is not a great guy, you know, you know, he spied on the new left, the movie, which mentions, mentions Hoover exactly once as, you know, or may, maybe twice, actually, but, but, you know, mentions him in passing, he's yeah. not right on screen. And, you know, the agency that we see is called the Bureau of Investigation, mm-hmm. they haven't called it the FBI yet. But, you know, Scorsese trusts you, to know who Hoover is, have some vague, I think, negative association with him, to understand that this thing called the Bureau of Investigation is what's going to become the FBI. He doesn't need to show you that the FBI is actually bad in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Well, he does show that they torture confessions out of somebody in this early iteration of them, which, you know, I think audiences aren't particularly inclined to object to because the people they're going after are so monstrous. And we just want to see them stopped, but, you know, is in fact a civil liberties abuse. But really, I think where the movie's subtle but existent point of view on the FBI comes in is in that penultimate scene, the radio show taping, which is a totally fascinating scene in in which it's some decades have passed when do we think that is the 40s the 50s it's the 40s yeah, yeah. wait a minute i'm trying to the, the show's gangbusters and that that would have been the late 40s and it would have actually been a show that like martin scorsese had listened to like he's talked right. in interviews about listening to these like like crime radio right, shows right. it's it's is, basically a true crime podcast it's yeah, basically yeah. serial before serial and and, and, and I, I should mention i i mean we, we talked about how this the story of the osage you know had, had been forgotten but actually i mean there, there, there's sort of waves of knowledge about it and there was this period in the 20s when when it first happened where it was very much used to bolster the image of the 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 fbi as it was being created and right. to say you know like this is this shows what we, we're necessary we can do we have this local crime that no one can solve we can do it and then later the hoover was a master of media manipulation you know right. got hollywood and others there's a hollywood movie in the late 50s as based on it but these radio shows and i'll mention for listeners who know my interest in comics, Jack Kirby actually did a comic book uh, story in uh, Headline Comics in 1948 
based on the Osage murders, nope. you know, and we, which had the, it's a, it's a, you know, because Kirby drew it, it's a great comic, but it has the sort of standard and it deals with the racism. I mean, it, it highlights the racism. That was the, uh, the, the main motive, but it, it has the standard thing at the end where it's like, you know, thank you, Mr. Hoover. And thank you, FBI, for doing this <laughs> and for solving this crime. And then that, that's exactly what Hoover wanted. He wanted people to be reading comic books, listening to radio shows and watching movies that like celebrated the FBI. And, you know, as you said, this is OK. It's a bit of a spoiler alert, but that's an incredibly amazing thing at the end where you have first the story of the 20s. Then you leap forward, not to the present. But to the forties, and you have a, like a, a radio program, and so so, so yeah. yeah, let's yeah. So so I want to talk about that, but but first let me just say, Jeet, have you done a one of your trademark Twitter threads on this Jack Kirby? Oh, I have, I have, I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll link to that as well. I, I do actually have a Twitter thread that talks, you know, Scorsese? I, 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 I didn't see it, but it's just like, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, that's a Jeet Twitter thread right there. Clearly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, in fact, Jack Kirby grew up like about. 10 or 15 minutes away from where Scorsese did. I mean, obviously, like, there's a 20-year difference. Like, uh, Kirby was born in, like, 1917 and Scorsese in the early 40s. But they were they were coming out of the same, um, uh, uh, you know, neighborhoods, basically. Right. Uh, so, 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 I have a whole discussion of all this. Uh, but, but yes. Well, well, so, but, so, the radio but, but, show. Yeah, the radio show. But, but this actually explains why, like, I don't know if, like, Scorsese remembered anything from the 40s. Or not, but he would have been very familiar with all the sort of FBI propaganda that was that the radio show exemplifies. And so, right. so, so in some ways, he's hearkening back to his own youth. But 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 go on. Well, so so my friends and I who who watch movies together have a a kind of um, this running joke. Actually, it's a joke stolen from a Twitter account, and I don't remember who it was. But someone someone tweeted something about the movie Black Panther when that was mm-hmm. uh, in theaters and popular, where they were like. I like the movie uh, Black Panther, but, you know, I, I really think it would have worked better at the end if the Black Panther had King Takala or whatever had turned to the camera and said, I'm a communist and the exact same kind of communist you are. And <laughs> we we riff on this a lot. And the joke is basically not necessarily communist, but, a, but any type of progressive, yeah, yeah. you know, quote unquote, woke progressives yeah. or whatever, who demand yeah. that art not only align with their political perspective, but like explicitly spell it out such that like mm. no one, no idiot could miss the the point of what the art is saying. And, and you know, me and my friends who, who, who share th- that, you know, quote unquote, woke and lefty political perspective, you know, still think there's something to be said for nuance and artistry and, and subtlety and treating the audience as intelligent people. So that... It, Case in point for Scorsese, who I think is wonderful at not doing that, not having the characters mm. turn to the camera and tell us exactly how we're supposed to feel. Um, Although whilst- I, I will, I think that's true of like uh, almost all of Scorsese. I will say that there's the infamous ending of The Departed, which has the the, the rat is set against the. But that's um, the but state that's capital. not. But that's <laughs> that's a that's a fun little visual metaphor, but it's still yeah. not exactly what yeah, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not exactly like, saying which form of comedy. This is, but, but yeah, this is. This. No, this is this is a movie where like, you know, characters could turn to us at the end 
and and spell out the exact messages mm. and and I think mm. he shows admirable restraint in that while sure. really yeah, yeah, capturing as as few movies have just how violent and evil and and sinister white supremacy and colonialism and patriarchy are all of that is in the text none of it screams at us and in particular on this FBI point as captured mm. in the radio show because I can imagine I think a very shallow reading of the movie as it relates to the FBI I'm going to say this in the voice of a a, a straw man critic that I'm making up. So, so stipulated. But the this shallow straw man critic might look at the movie and they might say, okay, like, you know, clearly Ernest and, and, and Hale are bad guys, but the FBI as portrayed by the movie are great, right? Like Jesse mm-hmm. Plemons comes in as a, a white knight and he stops these, these local gangsters and he puts them in jail, maybe not for long enough, but he does. And he ends the killing spree and then, you know, Marty Scorsese comes 20 years later on this fun radio show and he tells us, you know, that that it's it's sad how how the Osage murders never got their real due. And then we cut to the final shot of of, of today's Osage in formation. And, you know, it's an uplifting story about how in the end America did the right thing. I would find that a a terribly shallow, <laughs> reductive, missing the point reading. And I'm Maybe I just made it up. Maybe there's no one who no, read no, it that no. way. But no, I suspect there, people there, there, there are definitely people out there. I've seen it who have said, well, this is a white savior movie. Yeah, even the FBI's agent. It, it, it sounds the, like the first draft might have been. It sounds like yeah, the first draft well, might have veered yeah, too closely well, for that. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, what do you say that the the like, note that the FBI agent, who's like that, is is a heroic figure in the book and in the movie. His name is what? It's like Tom White, isn't it? Or Tom White, which is so yeah, which is, that, that's, that's real, but that's such a like that's real. Yeah, I know, but it's a, yeah, but yeah, but, 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 but yeah, no, no, absolutely, I totally agree. I mean, there's a sort of idea that some people, you know, I think an incredibly superficial reading of the movie is it's a white savior movie, but no, no, it, it absolutely yeah, isn't. And, let me let me give the alternative critical read of what I think is being done with the FBI and especially in that radio show scene, mm. you know, where, again, if Scorsese were a worse filmmaker, someone could have turned to the camera and made this more explicit than it actually is. But it's there. I believe it's there and I believe yeah. it's deliberate. First of all, you know. We are made clear, if nothing else, about this radio show that it's sponsored by Hoover, who I think Scorsese assumes audiences have a generally sinister connotation with, mm. and Lucky Strike cigarettes <laughs> that's sponsoring it, which are, you know, literally deadly and would not be allowed to advertise today. But, you know, it's the late 1940s and cigarettes are totally mainstream and, and advertised for everything. And that's not just a kind of a quaint, oh, we're in the 40s historical detail. It's a reminder that, you know, this is a, everything we're seeing with this radio show scene is, is, commercially sponsored FBI propaganda. That's what it is. Within capitalism, within... Within capitalism. Everyone on the stage is white. Everyone in the audience is white, right? The Osage are not here to tell their own story. Um, In fact, there are no black people there either because this is being done in in a deeply segregated mid-century America. The white people who are telling the story are doing so with these kind of like funny, quaint, (laughs) you know, comic side effects and exaggerated dialogue that, you know, again, you could superficially read as, oh, this is Marty's nostalgia for, you know, the the 40s and and his childhood or whatever, and the the golden age of radio. But no, it's it's all after this brutal story we've just been through, incredibly trivializing. It it's turned that into entertainment. It's turned it into sanitized 
you know, FBI and Lucky Strike sponsored entertainment by by white entertainers for white audiences, in which the whole thing is a kind of a caper. And in putting himself on stage, which I think some people have called indulgent, Marty is in fact implicating himself in that. Mm-hmm. He's showing how he himself is 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 part of how American tragedies are 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 turned into entertainment for white people. Which you know, if you look at the way some of his other movies have been received, like The Wolf of Wall Street, a movie where you know huge numbers of people miss the point. I mean, it's a it's a savage mm-hmm. portrayal of of Wall Street culture, and there are people who read it as a you know a celebration of how how fun it is to be Jordan Belfort because because he never turns to the camera and says, actually, Jordan Belford is a really bad man. He just shows you again and again how that's the case. And similarly, I think in in this movie, yeah, Marty is indicting himself. He's indicting, you know, himself as a white man, as, a, as an entertainer, as, as an entertainer who would deign to tell the story, while also, you know, trying to show he's aware of that and has tried to do better than that for the you know, 99% of the movie. And, you know, he's, and I think he's also indicting to a certain extent, the present day true crime podcast audience mm-hmm. that also likes terrible human stories turned into their, their kind of light entertainment, which, you know, I suspect many people listening to this have, you know, enjoyed Serial, for instance, as I did. Yeah. But, you know, there's something inherently sick about that, even when it's done pretty well and pretty sensitively. And I think he's he's nodding to that as well. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think he's always, there has always been this critique that his films are sort of glorifying gangsters. And I just like, you know, on one level, I never understood it because I mean, even in something like Goodfellas, which like, you know, it does like the first half of the movie does show you like, you know, like the, the thrill of being a gangster and the thrill of like, you know, just being able to push people around and get everything you want. But like, you know, like you, even at that first half, like you also see these guys are real flags and goons and it's a terrifying world because they could turn on you at any time. And certainly yeah. by the end of that movie, you know, like everything that like why you would not want to be a gangster, I think is there like in pretty explicit terms. Now, so, so I was like, well, that's a very superficial reading. But having said that, there are actual people out there who you meet who like, you know, like think of Henry Hill and Tommy played by Joe Pesci in the movie as, you know, like you know, characters they want to emulate. And that, that's all, always the problem with like, you know, you know, these powerful depictions of evil. You know, you get bad, what I, you know, the notorious bad fans that and the I other think, aspect- by the way, that this this particular movie, even if it could be misread as ultimately, you know, too sympathetic to the F. Other than that, I think is is almost bad fan proof. It's almost yeah. impossible for me to imagine anybody aspiring to be Hale or Ernest. They are, they yeah, are no, so loathsome. Yeah, yeah. Even though they are played by, you know, beloved Hollywood leading men, mm-hmm. even though the, you know, it's their brilliant performances and we get a lot of insight into like how they rationalize mm-hmm. themselves. I just can't, there's no equivalent in this movie to the the famous Copa tracking yeah. shot in, in Goodfellas, you know, the, where, where they, they, you know, get, go through the VIP entrance into mm-hmm. this club and the music is playing and, and it's, it's just like, oh, this is glamorous. I totally mm-hmm. get why someone would want to be a gangster. There's, there's nothing like that here. I, you know, obviously you know, anyone can understand the appeal of, of stealing a fortune worth tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, but 
even the way these 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 <laughs> these white mobsters spend their money isn't particularly appealing. I think he leans hard on how degraded they are, in particular in the scene where Hale spanks Ernest in the Masonic Lodge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I just can't imagine yeah, any no, modern uh, audience wanting no. that. <laughs> no, no, it's it's, it's not a glamorous uh, criminal. Actually, I think both the Irishman and in this movie are both kind of him trying to address that 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 complaint about his work and you know like showing like a sort of totally you know unglamorous view uh, of the criminal world i mean i, I felt in the irishman as well like there's the yeah. way that you could look at that character and think like i want to be that you know this is utterly damn they, uh, soul they... who's, who's alienated his family and the the, the the same here yes yeah they don't they don't get margot robbie either and yeah, uh yeah. you know <laughs> Yeah, no, they, no, no, uh, no, 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 having said, so, so I do think that, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's sort of, he, he's returning to this, this sort of thematics of the criminal gang, and I, I, like I said, I do think that there's, like, some awareness on, you know, maybe he's on his part of, like, trying to address the, um, the critique, but I want to emphasize as well, that, like, as I did at the beginning, there's stuff here that is, like, very much tied to Scorsese's whole career. And the two big thematics I see, or maybe the three big thematics are, and they're all intertwined, the sort of male abuser, the domestic abuse, the, the male that's a terrible boyfriend. There's very few Scorsese characters that you would be happy to see your daughter or your your, your female friends date. Like these are not good guys ever. This goes back like, to the very beginning of the his filmography, you know, like a sort of almost student film he made in 1967, Who's That Knocking at My Door, where Harvey Keitel plays a guy named JR who, you know, falls in love with like this wonderful, arty girl. But then, you know, it comes out in the relationship that she had been raped before. And then he like, you know, has that you know, horrific sexist reaction, like, you know, your your tarnished goods and like, you know, like you know, doesn't want any part of her. And then later tries to get back to her by saying, like, I'm willing to like, you know, overlook your rape. <laughs> like as if, you know, this is like, you know, like and so so right from the start, this is nineteen sixty seven, you know, like a huge awareness of what, you know, we now call toxic masculinity. And that's been a big thematic. The lesser thematic, but I think it's always been in there his work is an awareness of the way that racism structures American society. And the third thematic, which I think links the two of them, is the group, the 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 sort of, you know, the conspiratorial group that like looks after its own and is organized along patriarchal and racist lines. Yeah. You know, famously the mafia in many movies, but not just the mafia. I mean, once I think you wanted to make a point about the Age of Innocence. I like, did. Yeah. So I literally watched Age of Innocence, Marty's 1993 adaptation of it for the first time last night. Wonderful movie. Highly recommend. And, you know, I have not read the Edith Wharton novel, although I had a you know, vague familiarity with its premise. But, but you know, this is obviously, or maybe not obviously, depending on who you are, a story about wasp high society in late 19th century New York. And it's, it's, it's kind of a romantic triangle. And it's full of, you know, there, there's no, there's no murders in it. There's, there's not really crime per se. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a high society drama, but it's gut wrenching. Because what it captures so well, and what I'm guessing the novel also captures well, I, I, my sense is it's a very faithful adaptation, is how these wasp elite circles are actually structured very much like a mafia, with all kinds of rules and omerta and codes that have to be observed, and ways that order is maintained. 
and transgressions are, are punished or disappeared. Transgressors are disappeared. And, you know, the, the, it's incredibly subtle how the, the movie captures this because for much of its run, the story you think you're getting is the story of Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Newland Archer, and Michelle Pfeiffer's character, you know, estranged from her abusive marriage socialite. And he's engaged to Winona Ryder's character, May, uh, who is her cousin, and who is kind of played as a naive. And meanwhile, Newland and, and Olenska are played as kind of savvy and worldly. And like, they're the only two people who see through all the like, mundane conventions of the society around them and they and they have a a real bond and love and lust for each other because they can talk about those things in an honest way that no one else around them can and you watch most of the movie and you think okay this is like a portrait of that society and of a you know forbidden love affair happening between the only two people who see through it but if i may spoil this (laughs) century-old novel and 30-year-old movie in the final acts of the movie something really profound and you know, a kind of a gut punch happens where what you realize is May, the naive to, to whom uh, is engaged and eventually married, is much less naive than she seems. Mm-hmm. And in fact, all of the high society gossips around them have have been, you know, have, have kind of silently clocked their affair for a while now and are totally aware of it and manipulate things such that those two are permanently separated by an ocean. Newland is locked into his marriage with May forever and is a dutiful husband and father for the rest of his days. And no one ever speaks of it. No one, you know, there, there's no there's no condemnation, no, no accusation. Newland and Olenska both get to be rich and preserve their respectability, but they don't get each other, which is the ultimate torment for them. And you see how this society in its silent, brilliant ways has actually outfoxed them completely, destroyed their love, trapped them because they're, you know, the only way they could actually escape together would be to accept social disgrace and, and, and part with their fortunes, which, which they would never do. And you realize that the, the, the story you've been following the whole time is, is, is kind of the inverse that these, these two people are, are kind of pathetic and, and, totally entrapped by this very powerful mob-like society that has total control over their lives. It's an incredible story. And, you know, for something that I'm sure seems like a, a literary chick flick to the undiscerning viewer, you know, it's it's a mafia story. It's perfectly mm. Scorsese. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. The, the sort of society is a conspiracy and how hard one truth actually is. And then, and the, you know, the, the revelation that recasts everything that you've seen before. I mean, these are all, you know, kind of great things that he does. So, I mean, I think we've sort of covered everything, except that I did want to say one final thing about this, the dealing with the racism. You know, like, this I don't think has been noticed enough that he has always kind of um, acknowledged, or not acknowledged, but even been very aware and very sensitive to racism and dealt with racism, you know, with that sort of subtlety that you praised before. In Taxi Driver, if you watch it closely, you'll notice it's a very subtle thing. But whenever like Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro, is in a room with a black person, he just like just visibly tenses up just like ever so slightly. And and, and in, in that movie, Scorsese himself has a kind of cameo appearance as this, you know, horrific 
husband who wants to kill his wife because she's having an affair with a black man. And then that I think that scene is supposed to shed light on Travis Bickle's whole psychology. But but in uh, many of the other movies, it's it's never in I think previous movies it's never been like a foregrounded thing, but it's been in the background. If you watch Goodfellas, the Tommy character. The way he kind of like freaks out when his uh, girlfriend suggests that Sammy Davis Jr. is attractive is, is a very interesting moment. As is the moment where like, you know, the good fellas, they kind of like rob a, a truck and but they go in and say like, oh, we saw two black guys do it. Right. Yeah. And, and actually also the Samuel L. Jackson character in that movie who is kind of part of the gang, but not quite part of the gang. is kind of like, you know, Scorsese is just like has been, I think like remarkably observant and subtle about how race plays itself out. But but I, I until this movie, it's never been at the foreground. I think one, one thing the movie does is it takes these like, you know, his, his observational skills about racism, but really like brings it to the foreground and then links it up with these other thematic concerns of about domestic abuse and about the conspiratorial criminal gangs that rule society. The, the yeah. gangsters as, yeah. I mean, the other the other Scorsese movie I watched for the first time recently, and it's a recent movie of his that sort of fits into this is Silence, which I mm-hmm. thought was brilliant, which is his movie about Portuguese priests in, I think, 16th century Japan who are there to, you know, convert some large population of Japanese to, to Christianity. They have, to Catholicism. But the Tokugawa shogunate is it's consolidating is punishing Christianity by death and, you know, threatening and torturing whole communities into recanting. And these missionaries are basically alone in Japan. They don't have, you know, an imperial military apparatus behind them at this stage, which means that although we are aware that we as well-informed, you know, audiences are, are, are aware that what they're doing is a kind of, you know, they're they're functioning as agents of Western imperialism, trying to you know mm-hmm. break into a a kind of a, a closed foreign society. But you know, Scorsese is able to present both Japanese Buddhist society and these Catholic priests very empathetically and very much as kind of products of systems that are just antagonistic to each other. You know that mm-hmm. that that essentially have to clash. And he doesn't do this in a heavy-handed way. The The point of silence, I don't think, is, you know, Westerners never should have tried to bring Christianity to Japan, nor do I think it's Westerners should have brought Christianity to Japan, <laughs> and it would be good if the Japanese were all Catholic right now. But rather, I think how these... I, I, I think he pays real respect to the, the two cultures that are clashing, and I think he pays real respect to the kind of structures of power, in particular in Japan itself, that essentially necessitate the horrible human suffering that results from this encounter. And that's just, I think, a very neat trick to pull off that so many filmmakers are are so far from being able to do. Yeah, no, no, I I, I, I think that's right. And it, it absolutely ties in with the current movie. And then uh, since you mentioned silence, maybe the other theme or thematic to think about is religion and faith and the, the sacred in, in, the, in the broad sense. I mean, obviously, you know, someone, Scorsese, someone who grew up being a Catholic, had a period where he was thought about becoming a priest, didn't have the vocation, but it is, you know, remains very interested in faith in all its forms. And there is, 
there's two ways that the faith plays out in the movie. One is with the Osage and with the sort of, you know, the traditions and which I think are brought very meaningfully to life about their conception of the afterlife. And, but the other is like, the, uh, but the, the Osage in the movie you know, are Catholic converts, although they have a mixture of, as many indigenous people do, their their Catholicism is tinged with their own native spirituality. And there's this whole issue of like, sort of like forgiveness. And I think one of the interesting things the movie does is, you know, you know, tries to give, you know, like as much context or understanding of like very horrible actions, you know, which in the end are still condemned. But but I think that the, the the attention to actually like trying to understand why evil people do what they do and how they justify evil to themselves to me that seems like a very a religious project uh, as much as a narrative project it, it does seem like and I think that this is true of like, the Irishman as well like in some ways it to me is like the interesting thing about the movie is you know Frank Sheeran is given like many many chances for redemp for for some turning away from evil or from turning away from the life that he had lived and he can never do it and and the end he's left with a kind of like you know the silence of god and is an utterly damned soul and that's a very powerful thing which i don't think very many filmmakers have that that, that sense of you know the sacred and the spiritual and you know like what are the limits of of forgiveness yeah i mean as a and this is the last thing i'll say but as a totally atheistic Jew who has a a kind of low-level visceral contempt for organized <laughs> religion and is certainly not a Catholic. It is, I, I, I felt this above all watching Silence, but it's true in, this, in, in Killers too and in other movies he's made. It is a real testament to Scorsese's skill that he takes faith so seriously that I take it seriously. Yeah. Like the way he captures faith on screen and the logics of faith on screen, I find myself like weirdly able to understand where these priests are coming from, even though their mission of saving souls is completely alien to me. <laughs> and and where the the Japanese Buddhists who who want to mm. shut them down and force them to recant, where they're coming from too. And I think that just speaks to Scorsese's general talent at taking people, societies, and their deep motivations completely seriously in everything he does. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I you know. Just as you can tell, like, yeah, I, I think we're both two thumbs up, you know, like in the, the sort of Cisco Niebuhr language. It, it, it is a really, you know, I mean, less facetiously, it's, it's an incredibly great and powerful film, uh, which I hope people will go see. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.